Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, but you knew that, didn't you? Because you've listened to the show before. If you've never listened to the show before, you probably knew I'm Tim Clare from something on the actual podcast itself. Maybe read the description, maybe someone nudged you towards this. And if neither of those things is true, and you simply randomly stumbled across this podcast, if you're listening to it through a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances, a, 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 an accident of chance, then then aren't you wondering, why has the cosmos pointed you towards this man, this strange fellow, wittering at me into a microphone, into my ears? Could it be that I meant to be listening to him? Well, look, it's a show about writing. I'm a writer. I'm an author poet a little memoirist just i've done a little memoir yeah i just you know knocked one out um no that sound made it sound like i masturbated i suppose that is in a way what autobiography is but this show has got three central planks to its manifesto you can think of them as pranks if you want if you are slightly more of a uh, topsy-turvy lord of misrule you can certainly think of them as pranks as uh interventions but our three planks to our manifesto are i mean planks isn't even very isn't a great metaphor to be honest pranks makes as much sense as planks why are there three central planks to our why are we on some planks why why here's here's a manifesto it's got some planks what that doesn't manifestos are neat they're all written on paper Come on, Tim, this is why this is why you never got into politics. Hey, why don't we let's not write the manifesto on planks, guys. I've got an idea. Why don't we put the text in book and digital form? Then people can read it. Wow. Politics solved. The three central points of our manifesto, now it's gone spiky, are helping you to write more, helping you to write better. And helping you to be happier while you do the former too. Now, that seems like a bit of an ambitious manifesto. I mean, it's not really a, a manifesto. I don't... I, I, look, the point is, I want to make you happy. I want to make you write more. I want to make you write better. That And everything in the show. Look, sorry. Today's episode is a chat with the author, um, Emma... Newman it's a really good fun one um I, d- I don't want to undersell I don't want to I don't want to undersell it by doing this silly intro and and then it seems like I'm trying to undermine actually how great like the chat was if you're not if you're not familiar with Emma's work um she's written fantasy she's written science fiction depending on when you're listening to this um her latest uh novel uh Atlas Alone uh, which is science fiction is either out or is just about to come out in the UK and the US. I'm going to put links to all her books in the show notes. I think after you've listened to this episode, you're probably going to want to either check out her the first of her fantasy novels or pick up either uh, Planet the Planetfall, which is the first of her the Planetfall series, or um, after atlas i think like one of those is probably going to take your fancy but listen to the episode listen but we have a great chat she um emma's so good at uh just like really entertaining i loved this chat i've had a really good run of interviews lately where i've just been really 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 learning loads and enjoying them and i mean that very sincerely um 
I felt so lucky to get to uh, chat to Emma. Really enjoyed the chat. Learned a lot. And because she's taught other writers as well, actually she's really good at sort of articulating things she's learned in a way that you'll be able to use. So I think even if you don't write genre fiction, there's so many things that she talks about to do with fear and creativity and um, finding your way into things and what makes you blocked and, and some really counterintuitive stuff actually from her experience of working with writers that I think is gonna is gonna I, I know that I'm gonna get some emails from some of you saying that this kind of like unblocked something that this is that you're gonna have an aha moment at some point during this episode for a lot of you I think that will be true and I'm really excited for you um I know from my tone there, it didn't sound like I was excited or it sounded like I was slightly resentful of your coming epiphany. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm really excited for you. I am genuinely excited for you. Um, it's, it's a really great episode. I'm really, really proud of it. And I say proud of it. I had very little to do with it. It was Emma being brilliant and, and me with a tape recorder on. Before we get to the uh, episode, I just want to remind you that, I, as if you could forget, that I've got a novel coming out in, if you're listening to this in April, it's coming out in May, May the 2nd, uh, my novel The Ice House is coming out in the UK. There's a smorgasbord of options for you to pre-order if you go to the show notes or go on my website, timclairpert.co.uk, or if you just um, Google The Ice House Tim Clare, if you can pre-order, that would really help me out i've been starting to get some reviews in on uh, on netgalley some sort of like early reader reviews uh it's exciting i'm really looking forward to next month it's i know just some wonderful things are going to happen i know there's going to be some wonderful surprises waiting in store for me we're not very close to the 1500 uh target for getting the book into the top 10 hardback bestseller list i would guess there's been about 120 pre-orders however i think that is about 120 pre-orders more than the honors had when it came out so that's really great thank you very very much um and if you order pre-order from um mr b's emporium then uh if they reach 100 pre-orders which i think they nearly have uh then i'm gonna chuck in can and get a printing up some extra material that won't be going out with any of the other books that's exciting um I'm going to be doing some live gigs. If, you, if you're listening in April, then they're coming up in May. Would love to see you at them. Would love to see some people. Look, my ego is not so fragile that I uh, can't do gigs to rooms of two or three people. Um, you know, I did stand-up and performance poetry for 15 years and had that experience a bunch of times and had some really, really positive experiences with it. Also had some positive experiences with full houses as well. Obviously, from the venue owner's point of view, it is more or better. But you know i'm gonna i'm just grateful anybody would want to um come and see me and i know we're gonna have a wonderful time whatever however if you listen to the show and you would like to come and see me and hang out and say hi and uh, get a copy of my book and listen to me chat about it and do some readings and all that kind of thing then here are is where i'm gonna be um again there are links on my website and uh in the show notes of this show and if you just search for any of these to go and get tickets for any of these 
Uh, Wednesday the 1st of May, I'm having the uh, Norwich pre-launch of the Honours in... I'm sorry, not the Honours, the Ice House. The Honours is already out, but there will be copies of the Honours, I think, at all of these events I'm doing as well. So if you haven't got that yet, there is a great place to go to get them as well. So I'm doing um, Waterstones in Norwich on Wednesday, May the 1st, 7pm. It's free, there's going to be some booze, I'm going to do a reading, chat to people, sign books. Should be really chilled out, really good fun. Love to see you there. If you're in London or you live near London, I'm, I'm doing on the next day, Thursday, May the 2nd, I'm doing a gig at Foils. Now, for the Foils one, a little bit kind of more elaborate, um, we're, um, we're actually going to be recording the first ever live episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. This podcast, we're doing record, the first ever recorded live episode. Um, the author Joe Dunthorne's coming. Um Please send me your first pages, your two, first 250 words. We're going to be doing um, uh, first page feedback and I'd like to get in as many as possible. So, you know, two or three. Um, we're going to be doing that live. We're also going to be talking about our writing. Joe's got a uh, uh, his new poetry collection is out with Faber. Really, really exciting time. Um, you know, so we're going to have a chat. We're going to talk about our books. I'm going to talk a bit about the ice house probably read from it a little tiny bit and then we'll look at some people's first pages so it's going to be a big live show if you live in london or you live near uh, uh, at the moment a listener's told me that they're coming from the netherlands for that episode um which is exciting uh so if you live closer what are you waiting for what's your excuse would love to see you there and of course um there'll be other listeners there so you can all say hi to each other because one thing that i found out about this show is that listeners are all really lovely and uh, so there'll be a bunch of writers that would love to see you for that um then on the 14th of may um i'm going to be in bath at the wonderful mr b's emporium uh indie bookshop and i'll be doing a night of reading from the ice house talking about the world of the honors and creating a fantastic world talking about just yeah just talk about writing might take some questions from the audience we'll we'll run with whatever uh people want to go with there and then on uh, the next day, May the 15th, I'm going to be in Bristol at um, Indie Bookshop Storysmith. And I'm going to be recording another live episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. Again, first page feedback. So please get your 250 words in to me. I would love, I'd love, love to um, do some first pages. And I'm going to be joined by um, author Gareth L. Powell there. Uh, so we'll talk about our writing. He's got a book called About Writing coming out, which is about writing, his creative writing manual. So that should be really, really fun. Oh my gosh. I, I, hope, to, I hope to see you at one of those. So we've got Bristol, Bath, London, Norwich. Go and um, you can search for them or look in the show notes. I'll put links and get some tickets and come and, and see me and support the podcast. We'd be lovely to see you. And tell your friends. If you have any friends who live in those cities who you think, you know, write or might be interested or read, um, please help spread the word because I don't have, you know, an advertising budget to let people know. Some of the stores are letting people know, but basically word of mouth is the way people are going to come to these. So if you know someone who you think would enjoy it and you want to tip them off, please send them my way. I uh, promise you I will do my best to be um, lovely and welcoming to everyone who comes along. Whew, that's it. That's it. We can do it now. OK, we can go into the episode. Thank you for sticking with me this long and listening to the little bit of promo. Um, this is a um, chat with the incredibly talented, incredibly smart and uh, incredibly wise 
author Emma Newman. I hope you enjoy it. Because I used to, I used to record these, and I do like a big, I do like the opening of the episode, and I do a big introduction, and it was fine, but it tended to create a kind of slightly weird atmosphere in the chat, <laughs> like, like I thought that we were live, like it made it feel like we were live, and I was, and I, and I just can't help but dropping into a kind of shock jock thing, of going like, <laughs> hey, hello, and, and, it, and, it, and it, it just wasn't a very natural way to sort of chat to somebody, so. I've, I've stopped doing that now, and I think it's all, all the better for it. Um, uh, okay, um, so hi Emma, by the way. Sorry, I should say hello. I'm such, such an idiot. Hello. Hi, how are you today? That's going to be my first question. My um, incisive question based on years of loving literature and genre fiction. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm hanging in there. I'm a bit tired, but. I mean, everybody is these days. Yeah, my gosh, yes, I know. Like the number of conversations I have with people, especially on the show, where they're just like, "How are you?" And there's this kind of, there's this kind of like little plummeting sound in their in the back of their throat as they decide how, how how deeply to answer that question. And they're like, "Yeah, I mean, yeah, you I'm know getting the on with things." We're living in. <laughs> yeah, my gosh. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's an interesting time to be alive, shall we say? but uh yeah yeah things are okay yeah i i'm I'm glad i mean i i I kind of i do feel like we live uncomfortably close to the apocalypse (laughs) but i try to like balance that with knowing that like detective pikachu is going to be coming out soon and maybe that's the price we have to pay for like living this close to the end times is yeah yeah there are really strange payoffs in the modern age (laughs) really strange you know instant access to millions of cat gifts and also resurgence of fascism oh um yeah not really sure it doesn't doesn't feel like the scales have been i'm not sure how many i'm not sure you could put enough cat gifts on that one side of the scales to make that reasonable so I wanted to, this is great for us talking about science fiction and the future, but before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, what's the first, what's one of the first stories you can remember telling? Uh, well, I mean, do you mean writing? Because that, that's the difference. Uh, up, to, up, to, up to you, really, whether it's, whether it's something that you were doing spontaneously or something that you sat down and started creating. Where well, does it start my, for you, writing? Um, when I was four, apparently, though it, I don't know if it's a correct answer to your question because I don't actually remember it, but it's my grandmother's favourite story, especially since I got published, was that she remembers me sitting at her kitchen table when I was four working on something very industriously and when she asked what it was that I was doing I said I'm writing a story Nana so all my life I remember writing it it was something that was there all the time apart from a particular 10-year period um, between the ages of 17 and 27 when I did not write a word Um, and there was a very specific reason for that block Um, so yeah it's, it's something which is there all the time and in terms of it, well, I can remember dozens of little stories that I wrote throughout primary school. I had an amazing teacher called Mr. Axon, um, who used to give story prompts in the, the form of like lines of dialogue that could form the title of a story. And I adored him and I used to write prolifically for him. Um, 
but the the thing I have the, the fondest earliest memories of is um, writing Star Trek Next Generation fic in my maths classes. Um, and that's why I'm really terrible at maths. But I feel that given my career now, it was a good payoff. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of, I feel on, I feel, feel on one hand, it's that's so interesting because on one hand, you're kind of betraying the nerd cause by like <laughs> skiving off maths. But on the other, to, to do Next Generation fanfic that's that I, I feel like you kind of got away with it it was almost like a double agent that's real deep I totally did get away from with it and you know there wasn't even the word in my my entire lexicon that back then fanfic didn't exist in in my way it was you know before the internet and um you know fanzines photocopied fanzines were what was going on and, and even that I wasn't part of yet because I was too young and I was you know in school and and like you know the only Trekkie in the school and um so in many ways, I have the, the archetypical nerd childhood experience of always being on the fringes and being that weird girl who is into time travel and Doc Brown far more than Bross or whatever horror was happening at the time. Um, but yeah, that, that, was, um, that was the first story that I wrote and obsessed about and wrote a lot of and completed. So that, that is a kind of a big thing for me. It was several... It, well, it filled an A4 pad of paper, so I, I estimate it was probably, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 words long, that story. That's amazing. Can you remember yeah. what it was about, aside, obviously, like, <laughs> next next generation, but can you remember how what your, what your take on it was? Well, <laughs> it's a funny so- story to do with that. <laughs> so, um... So uh, one of the uh, most awful things that happened to me as an early writer was that I finished this story and was thrilled. And um, we had a lodger that lived in our house at the time and she'd seen me carrying this pad of paper around and scribbling furiously in it at any moment of the day when I wasn't having to do something else and asked me what it was. And I said, oh, it's a story and I finished it. And she asked to read it. And like a complete idiot, I said, yes. And she read it and then a few days later said, oh, well, that's obviously all about you and your dad then, isn't it? And I died. And it was awful (laughs) because I had no idea. Because it was about this girl who um, was orphaned and had to go and live on the Enterprise. um, And Captain Picard had to adopt her because of some weird legality. And it was entirely me processing Captain, the fact that Captain I had Picard, to... like, legendarily bad with kids, was, yeah. like, <laughs> very yeah. uncomfortable around children, um, was yeah. your ideal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hasten to say that I've always been very close to my dad, and I'm a real, I was a real daddy's girl, and I, I was delighted to go and live with my dad, but I hadn't lived with him since I was five years old, and then I suddenly had to go and live with him when I was 13, and there was a huge amount of trauma um, going on in my life at the time and, and I effectively kind of processed um, a massive amount of upheaval and upset in my life by writing this fanfic um, but I had no idea that's what I was doing I, in my mind I was writing this story uh, anyway they had all kinds of stuff in it I, to be honest I, I have no idea whatever happened to it and if I found it I don't think I'd be able to b- bring myself to read it um, because so much pain went into that story um, and then when I had that feedback, it felt like I'd just been laid bare. It was horrendous. I didn't show anyone my writing for a very, very long time after that. That's because, I mean, it, it sounds, do you think, do you think, because when they said said that, I thought you, they were going to say something, you know, incredibly cutting about it. But actually, they seem to have taken it 
quite the lodger seems to have taken it quite seriously in a way you know really like engaged with it as what it was so what do you think it was a, about that that because also with that formative experience one would think well why did you but you did write again afterwards yeah I mean I, I couldn't stop writing really and um the, the reason why I um had this like 10 year long block about four years after that one so I carried on writing but I just did it in secret and didn't share it with anyone and then um, for my A-level English we had the opportunity to do creative writing as part of the coursework requirement and I was like well yay this is awesome so um, I wrote a short story um, called Newton's Third Law which was about a time traveller and um, I made this blood pact with my best friend when I was 15 that I would apply to Oxford. I wasn't that fussed about it, but she had a sister who was going there and she loved the place and she didn't want to apply by herself. So I said I would. And then the time came to apply to university and um, I was then, by then in my fourth secondary school, I'd been moved all over the country and yeah, well, um, and the teachers at the school kind of laughed at me and said, there's no way you're going to get into Oxford. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> the, no teachers, the teachers the yeah, teachers how you know, dare they that's outrageous like, there's no way you're going to get into oxford don't do the exam and if you insist on kind of wasting that slot in your application then um you need to go via the interview route wait i don't know what it's like now but at the time you could send in two pieces of work with your ucas application and then if they liked the work they would invite you to interview and they said the only way you're going to get into that place is if you talk your way in so <laughs> Then I was really, really motivated, like, well, screw you guys. <laughs> I'm totally going to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like a blood pact and bloody mindedness. And as soon as anyone said, well, you can't do that, then that was like, OK, kids, buckle up. I'm going <laughs> full tilt now. <laughs> and um, so I got this uh, Shakespeare essay and this Spanish essay together to send in. And I was literally walking past the English block um, with the application all like in the, in the brown envelope and my English teacher came running out and said is that the Oxford application and I said yeah and she said take out the Shakespeare and put in this story that you've given you've just given me for for course I've just marked it. you've got to, you've got to send this and I was like I can't do that it's science fiction I can't send that to Oxford what are you talking about and we stood on the street literally and argued and um, she won and I took out the Shakespeare and I put in the story and thought, ah, oh, sod it, I'm never going to get in now. And I didn't want to anyway, and, and you know, sulked off back to my room. And then I got an interview and, um, and I got in. And the first night that I was at the college, I was at this really horrendous drinks evening. Oh, my God. But you all have to wear name badges and make small talk. It's, it is actually a circle of hell. And... Um, this ancient woman came up to me and said, like, looked at my badge and said, oh, you're the one who wrote the story. And I had no idea at the time if that was a good or a bad thing. So <laughs> I just kind of like grunted non-committally. And she said, you do realise that got you into Oxford, don't you? And I said, well, I haven't had my interviews yet. And then she just laughed and walked off. And I said, sorry, excuse me, um, who are you? And she said, I'm the admissions tutor. And I said, oh, what, what did you think of my Spanish? I said, and she said, oh, my dear, I don't read Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and it just walked off. And I, my thought was, shit, I spent so long on that bloody Spanish essay. But there we go. 
So that that is that is the story of how uh, I so hang got on. to university and then didn't write for ten years. Yeah. So so I've got so <laughs> much I want to unpick in that, Emma, and, and like already this is sort of chiming with sort of my experiences because I was you know the creative writing weirdo at school and I would say now when I go into schools something that actually makes me want to well up with thankfulness is I've been to schools on the sort of uh uh uh, national uh book day and there are weird kids now because of the internet those people that were just I was like the only one in my school or certainly often the only one in my class who like read a read books for pleasure like I got I got bullied because I read fiction that was like that was the level my school was at (laughs) was like that used to be a line in kind of like bullying thing was they go oh Tim do you want to come out and play football and then they'd go nah I'm reading my book and that was like the joke was like Tim likes reading books that is like I know but now I go to schools and I see kids and they're doing like cosplay there's like the group of kids who all like for different, you know, who all, all, all read Homestuck and are all dressed up as trolls. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, they know other people are out here. So it doesn't matter if they're only a group of three. They know other kids exist in the world. They know there's other people writing fan fiction. They know. And they're not alone anymore. And they're more OK with being themselves. And it's amazing. But why did going, why did being validated in the most incredible way make you go oh, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do this anymore <laughs> well that's that's a wash then the writing thing yeah that obviously doesn't work yeah it doesn't make any sense does it when you look at it from that perspective and i mean at the time i didn't like go back home after the interview process and go well that's it i'm never gonna write again there was no conscious decision at any point i just stopped writing and I guess at the time I was thinking, I had a conditional offer, so I, I had to get two A's and a B. And so I kind of worked my ass off for the rest of my A-levels and um, so that I could go. And I guess then when I got to university, um, I, I found the Role Playing Game Society and that was it. I mean, I, I'm joking here. I'm being flippant because I know now, looking back on it and having done a lot of work on um blocks to writing and the psychological barriers that I've put up within myself and that other people put up within themselves that stop them from writing I know now that it was fear that the the experience of a success can be just as crippling as the experience of a failure and I didn't understand that at the time and I've met I do a workshop um, on writing and anxiety and I've done it at conventions all, you know, all over the world now. And um, I've taught this to hundreds of people now. And some people in the room are like, well, how on earth can success be, be something that can hold you back? But then there are always people in the room who are nodding. I met somebody um, on a cruise that I was a tutor on and um, they had their work critiqued by an author who they admire, like who are a massive fan of. And this author said to her, 
this is great, this is fantastic, keep going, you're doing brilliant work. And then she hadn't been able to write for the two years since that. Oh day. my gosh. And like that and... is the kind of, that's so, that's almost like something you feel like you can't share with people because they'd like go, how, how could that have put you off? Yeah, and it's, it's something that comes up again and again and again. And I've had lots of people talk to me about experiences where it, it's actually the first validation or the first bit of um, real praise that means a huge amount to them that cripples them. And there's so much that happens beneath the surface in this. You know, there's the fear that you caught lightning that one time in the bottle and you'll never be able to do it again. There, you kind of grow this ogre of expectation um, in your own mind that you're 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 something you're you're somebody to watch now or you're you're you, there are expectations placed upon you and your success that are so terrifying um those expectations are, are so crippling that you you can't actually move past them when you're not consciously aware of them i mean funny enough there's a there's a star trek next gen episode where there's this scientist who was like a wunderkind as as a, a, as a young man and and he says i think to wesley crusher or something um along the lines of there is a man has no greater enemy than his own potential and um that really resonated in terms of this kind of thinking that if someone says that's fantastic then it's like oh god right i really have to produce the goods now um, so I think, you know, that's what happened. And when I excavated that and figured it, figured it out many, many years later, in fact, it was um, my late best friend, um, just out of the blue, I got this parcel in the post, a book called The Artist's Way. Uh, I think it's by Julia Cameron, if memory serves. Yes, it and, is, yeah. Yeah, she sent this to me and just wrote a note with it saying, didn't you used to write? And Oh, no! I, I know, and oh. I looked this book and I was like shit yeah and worked through it and i only got halfway through that book um and then i wrote my first novel in 28 days i mean it was shit well you know it was, it was a really bad book <laughs> it went on to get published many drafts later um but uh yeah that was uh that was that was a book called 20 years later which was my first kind of publishing horror story and uh but that's a whole other tale. Um, but yeah, so I got through that block, but it was 10 years. But I never stopped telling stories. And I think that's another component in this is that I went to university, I found the Role Playing Game Society, which was my, my only goal, really, when I arrived in the city was, where, where are the role players? Because I discovered that as a teenager. And um, it was like, I need, I need to find my tribe. I found my tribe. And then I was GMing. Um, and so I was telling stories. It was just in a different form. And so that need within me, that kind of burning need to constantly tell stories was being satisfied. So I, I didn't need to write. And when I went back to taking writing very seriously, I actually stopped GMing because it was all being drawn from the same well and I, I couldn't do both. This is the thing. Is I, I, if, is it all right if we sort of sidestep into um, role-playing for a second? Sure. Because I've had um, several uh, either role-players or, you know, we've had Grant Howard on the show talking about writing uh, his uh, RP, TTRPGs. And I, I got into role-playing very, very late in life, only in the last... Uh, last few years somebody came to my book launch and bought one of my books and then afterwards said 
we're starting a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Would you like to join? And I said, um, all right. And then and now I do it every week and I, I love it. But um, Yay. I know. Right. And so I'm really uh, I'm a late convert, but I really feel very strongly about it. And so a lot of what you're saying resonates with me because I also had that second second book anxiety. Right. So I was wondering, I wanted to ask you, you said that you started um, pl- role playing and it fulfilled the same thing. And I just wondered for people who are listening, um, what do you think it was? Do you think it was a good? This is the it was it was it a good thing or a bad thing to be doing role playing? What I mean is, was it something that was training you, or was it something that was allowing you to dodge writing books? Because you said you kind of when you started writing again, you stopped GMing. Uh, so my answer is yes, even though it's an either-or question. And let me explain. <laughs> so um, everything I learned about how to write. Um, I learned through GMing, uh, not from how to write books or how to write courses or anything like that. I learned it at the coalface, GMing groups of players. And what I learned from that was how to hook people into a story, how to intrigue them, how to build worlds, how to maintain pace, how to structure a narrative. And... These things are always going to be fluid and chaotic in a role-playing game, especially a tabletop, because players, <laughs> because your oh. players <laughs> will like see a plot and, and go, now ah, we're going to go all the opposite <laughs> direction. Oh and, my you know, gosh, you have yes. To, yeah, you have, to, you have to accept that. And, you know, as a good GM, you never railroad your players you, because it's like trying to get cats in a sack, isn't it? You just, you can't do that. Um, but it taught me things like... Um, the way to deal with that is to always know what else is happening in your world. You have to understand the metaphysics of your world well enough so that when a player says, oh, yeah, but what would happen if we luzzed this into that abyss over there? Mm. You need to know exactly what would happen, because if you understand all of the metaphysics and you've done the world building on that level, you can keep everything internally consistent. So these are really, really, really critical skills to have when you write science fiction and fantasy, um, because internal consistency is key. And well, if, if for me, as, as a raging world-building nerd, it, it is a very important thing for me. Um, and the other thing as well is that in a role-playing game, when you have players who you may not be able to predict exactly what they do, is that the, the critical NPCs, the non-player characters in the world, um, you need to have a very, very good idea about how they work psychologically. You need to know what they want, what they're prepared to do to get it, and what they're not prepared to do to get it, and th- what they will do in the background. So if the, the players decide that they're not actually going to go and have that important meeting with the mayor of that town that day, that mayor is not going to just not exist whilst they're going off and doing other things instead. The, the world's story is going to continue in the background. And that kind of thinking um, really, really helps in terms of creating naturally interesting antagonists and secondary characters in your books, um, because they will be more realistic. They will be more like real people. So, yeah, I don't regret 
I mean, you know, I'm astounded I came out with a degree, to be honest, because I got a degree in bloody role playing. I was playing like seven games a week at one point. Oh, my and... gosh. I'm so <laughs> jealous. It was, it, was, it was incredible. And the people that I role played with are, are, are like, you know, still my closest friends. And it was amazing. And it gave me so much, so much joy and taught me such a huge amount. I don't care that I didn't write. I I am absolutely 100% certain that all of that time that I was immersed in those stories, I was immersed in what is, in, is arguably the most important thing about being a writer, which is the love of story, storytelling, the love of storytelling and the the appreciation of narrative, of world building, of realistic characters, and and having so many opportunities to examine the the complexities of relationships. You know, I I this is going to sound like really pretentious, but I I really do feel like I've lived more lives because of you know several games that I played for years, and I'm a very uh, intense role player, and I really I really really get into it and. There's a LARP that I play at the moment where, you know, I four times a year I will go and live in another world for four days and, you know, sob and yell at people and all kinds of things. And that, that is a whole other life. And all of those experiences enrich us and enable us to write more authentically. So, yeah, I would say to anyone, go and role play. But if you really, really, really want to take the writing seriously, you may have to accept that you may have to pull back on the GMing, or you may just end up being some kind of genius like Adrian Tchaikovsky, who writes all the books and is a bloody good GM and can do both at the same time. I hate him. I love him, really. <laughs> I, I I just want to sort of co-sign that, really, and say, like, four years ago, I would have, I would have nodded sort of sympathetically, but in the same way one might... Um, in in the in the same way one might human humor an elderly relative who was saying that they'd sort of <laughs> that they talked to their plants and made them grow like I wouldn't be like scathing but I would quietly be just sort of like putting that in on the back burner of my mind and going that's fine that's all right for them to believe that if they make it makes them happy but I absolutely agree with you and I actually did a gig recently where a couple of um, psychiatrists in a medium security unit came up to me afterwards because I'd mentioned GMing on stage and playing and role playing and said, look, we're now playing Dungeons and Dragons with our with our service users as a way of helping them explore their feelings. A lot of it was to do with helping them plan, like how are we going to do a plan? Are we how we what? items are you going to need to buy in the village before you go out how are you going to learn to communicate with each other but they were really interested in this kind of like uh, in role playing as a form of therapy which again speaks to what you were saying about dealing with writer's block as a kind of form of therapy or at some level melding with that I think you know and, and role playing is a kind of story gym isn't it but at some point you've got to leave the gym to go and do your hiking up a mountain or do your uh to do your um marathon. So can I just ask what you learned about making the transition from that into writing long form fiction? Because you obviously that was a very successful transition in the, in so much as you you're still able to write books. And I was wondering 
because there'll be some people I know from the letters I get who are listening who are like, look, I can think up ideas and I can play, play, I can role play and do all this, but I'm finding it hard to sit down and start working on a my novel. I'm scared of, of making that start. Can you give us, have you got any ideas of ways that they can, how did you start making that move? What did you learn from, you know, you read, you're saying you started working through the artist's way. Yeah, so The Artist's Way, um, I, there were lots of, I mean, I, I do recommend that book to people. Um, it, it was an, an absolutely critical stage of unblocking myself for me. When it came to writing the first book, I actually wrote, I was writing the book of a role-playing game that I'd been running for several years. And this is a very, very common thing. And so my first bit of advice to anyone who is, particularly GMing a game and going, bloody hell, this is brilliant. This world is brilliant. These characters are brilliant. My mates are happy for me to write this as a book. I'm going to do this. You have to accept that they are fundamentally different media and that a story which can seem exciting and thrilling in your front room with a packet of bourbons next to you and all the tea is not necessarily going to work in the format of a novel. And that was one of the hardest lessons I had to learn was that I wanted to kind of write stuff up that was kind of faithful to particular set pieces in the role playing game um, and to follow the same narrative structure as the game had. But then for exactly the reason I gave before that narrative structures within role playing games are so heavily influenced by the players they can be kind of sometimes chaotic and quite convoluted and um, not necessarily logical when you start to actually work out a narrative structure in a novel. Um, so you have to let it go. You have to stop being precious. And as a GM in particular, you are going to be precious about so many details that do not need to be in a book. Um, and it's the same for research. Um, a book is an iceberg. And that iceberg is made up of all of the things you know about the world, all of the research you did, and what actually makes it into the novel may only be like 5%. Um, and you have to be strict with yourself and, and say, actually, you know, this isn't working. And that is one of the hardest things to learn because when you start to write it and it all comes pouring out, that's, that's where I think there's a common... Um, example of people getting 30,000 words or so into a project and then grinding to a halt, um, which I've seen time and time and time again, because the initial thrill of the idea and the kind of the instigating incident for a role-playing game and for a novel can be very similar. So you have loads of momentum writing about it all, but then suddenly you have to make it work as a book and and you get bogged down and it, it, it doesn't make sense and you don't necessarily have a good sense of the, the core spine of the novel. So when that problem comes up, um, what I would invite people to do is to step right back and say, okay, what is the actual story, the main story that I want to tell? Is it this particular character and their development? Okay, what is their developmental arc? How do they start this story? Where do I want them to end this story? And what may happen to them along the way for them to make that change? Something has to change. And when you start to step back 
you can see how you need to approach it differently to a role-playing game because as a GM you have an idea of a plot that is happening within the world your players are the ones who are controlling their characters and who have developed their characters and you do interweave them obviously but you don't have as much control over that as you need to when you're a writer um, and so you you have to kind of impose that discipline um, so that's that's what I would say is to, to not be precious don't waste your time recording the sessions and writing them up, um, which I know lots of people do. I've had several friends who've done that and they've all eventually said, God, listening to us role playing, there's just so many arguments and circular conversations. Why am I doing this? Because it's a fundamentally different experience. And, and like when you're a player, it does, you know, you can be in a car chase scene and it seems like the most thrilling thing in the entire universe because you are being that character. You are personally investi invested in that story, but it can be the most cliched, awful thing in the world. You know, there are different levels of, of expectation. Um, does that make sense? You know, you it, have to work harder. It does. Making it, something interesting in a book. <laughs> it, well, it's, it's, it's the way, in the same way that a comedy improv skit is not the same, doesn't have the same level of script writing as <laughs> a as a as, as a comedy skit that has been written by comedy writers and edited and worked on. Right, like when yeah. you're watching an improv set, part of the thrill. Part of the joke is the possibility of failure, is not knowing what's going to happen, is watching the kind of amazing sort of tennis match of these uh, improv uh, actors, like bouncing ideas, making offers that the other person then refuses. In the moment of a game, there's a player, there's, a, there's an invisible player around the table, which is the dice, um, who can mean that you can all, like even the GM doesn't have total control over the game. They can roll some, you can roll some dice. I'm going to attempt to do something. Nobody around the table knows whether you're going to be successful. And that creates a kind of magic that you can't then put into a book because, <laughs> and, and it creates an inherent bathos as well, where a character for no good plot reason will try and climb up a ladder and fall off and knock themselves out. And <laughs> that's funny. But if in a book, if that scene's supposed to be a moment of sort of like deep poignancy, if another character's bleeding out and you have like, this B plot that's like something out of the Three Stooges. It's very difficult to thread the needle of that and not... And of course, like, role-playing is inherently episodic. It's got probably at least four protagonists who all think that they're the heroes of the story. Maybe it's something that um, translates better into, I don't know, like... Um, comics or something where you've got, like, where you can handle larger casts and it is episodic. But it is... Gosh, like it's and, so different, and the volume of puns as well. Like, no reader should be put through that many people doing. It's like being stuck. Also, like part of the joke is it's like going on a long car trip with people, and you develop in jokes, and you develop a shared narrative. I mean, I love it to, I love it to death, but I wouldn't want to trap anyone in our game world. Nobody <laughs> deserves that, you know. Yeah, it's it's funny because. I'm not saying, you know, if people are listening to us and going, oh, great, that that this sucks and, you know, how, how dare she say these things? 
you don't have to throw the entire baby and bathwater out. A game can be incredibly inspirational and can, you know, the first three novels I wrote, one of which was published and never should have been, um, was the game I ran. It, it was not exactly the same as the actual game, um, but it was effectively the story that I wanted to tell in both. It was just a kind of refined version um, of the story that was told in the game. And so you, you can totally use a game world and put it into books. And, you know, many people do that very successfully. The only thing that I would say is a note of caution is to not expect for them to translate directly from one to the other. That's where the skill of the novel writing comes in, is in that translation. Um, and there, is, there are just some stories that work brilliantly in role playing games and do not work in novels anymore because you can play with really boring, tropey nonsense in a role playing game and be delighted by it deeply. But you could not do that in a book. Uh, I th Everyone would be bored. Yeah, it's like it's cool to like be a kind of 70s kind of cop thriller and be kind of like running through the streets with your handguns while the kind of like wah wah pedal goes wick, 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 and like and go oh like I'm I'm in it I'm in the I'm in the I'm in the trope that's exciting yeah. and there, it can be done with a little bit of self knowledge in a book it's very difficult for people to not feel like you're just <laughs> yeah yeah so you can you can obviously explore things you can I mean a role playing game is a fantastic way to make sure that you have your metaphysics straight um, the split world series which was the um, the second series of books that I wrote, um, all of that world um, grew out of one short story and then a role-playing game that I ran. Um, only a kind of, it wasn't even a full narrative that was run in the game, and the game was incredibly different to what the books ended up being, but some of the early ideas were explored in that game. Um, and then went on to be completely different in many ways in the books, but it was still a critical part of that process. And then a LARP was run, set in that world, um, between books three and four. So it all kind of came full circle. Um, so there can still be an interaction between them, even if one isn't, if, even if the novels aren't faithfully reproducing what you played within the game, you can still test ideas. Can can we talk about um, split worlds? At some stage, I'm going to ask you sort of a couple of big questions about genre that I don't know the answers to, and I'm sure are going to sound either too broad or terribly unfair. But um, could you, for people who haven't um, read um, any of the split worlds books, could you just give a little pricey of what they're about? Yeah, so the Split World series is uh, a complete five book series and it's urban fantasy. It's set in um, effectively three layers of reality. There's Mundanus, which is our everyday world. Um, there's the Nether and there's Exilium. And Exilium is effectively a magical prison where the Fae are kept apart from human beings um, because they, they messed about with them too much. And in between the two is the Nether, and the nether um, is kind of like a magical reflection of several cities. So the first book is set in Aquaisulis, which is the magical reflection of Bath. And in the nether, there are dynastic feuding families who have fae patrons. And the fae use them and manipulate them to steal people from Mundanus. 
Um, and the books follow four characters uh, in this world. Um, the main character is Kathy, who was born into one of the great families, um, but escaped and ran away in Mondamis to go to university. And uh, so the, the whole series is about freedom. It, there are lashings and lashings of feminism and cakes and lots of tea, insane sorcerers, really, really evil fairies, because I, I really do not like disnified fairies. They're, they're closer to the kind of the danger of the, the she um, of mythology and, and are really, really awful, awful people. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one great big story. So you have to start at the beginning. Um, the first book is called Between Two Thorns. Um, and it's an examination of patriarchy um, because the, one of the other main characters is a character called Will. Um, and I wanted to examine the impact of patriarchy, not just on women, but also on men and how it destroys men's lives as much as it destroys women's lives. Can I, so, uh, can I ask, so I'm going to ask about the patriarchy thing in a minute. I don't want to sound like I'm sidelining that, but I was just starting to build up this excitement because I like, I like this series is so in my wheelhouse of things I just love so i i don't i don't want to i don't want to squee too much all over you talking about the serious <laughs> themes by going oh it's so cool <laughs> so i'm aware that like i don't want to I don't, I don't want to sound like i'm sort of being condescending about it it's not it comes from a genuine place of like real enthusiasm i wondered if you i want to talk i just want to ask like why Faye and the fairies what like drew you to them why did you want to write about them and what did writing about them allow you to do you know i i was so surprised that i was writing a story with fairies in it because they never really did much for me as a kid i was i was all sci-fi sci-fi all the way baby i found nicholas fist's trillions in Campbellon library when i was like eight that was all i read science fiction from that point and so the fantasy, I didn't read fantasy as a kid. I think The Dark is Rising is the only fantasy I read as a kid that I can remember. Um, and so when this story about fairies popped into my head and I, I was writing every Friday, I was part of a Friday Flash community. This is some years ago now. And I literally woke up one morning with an idea in my head for a short story about a woman taking a fairy in a bell jar back to this shop where she thought her husband had bought it from, thinking it was a hologram that was malfunctioning because he'd been on business in Japan and she wanted a refund because it wasn't doing anything. And she doesn't know that it's a real fairy and that she has accidentally stepped into a magical shop in the nether. And the story is about the shopkeeper's reaction to her and him deciding not to kill her. And I got up, wrote it, went out and came back and had this fantastic response and he just kind of wouldn't leave me alone. So it's, it sounds really cheesy, but it's kind of like it found me rather than me having a hankering to write about fairies. And as I was writing it, I was kind of realising that one of the things that I never liked about the kind of the fairies I had been exposed to as a child in, in stories was that they were really sanitised. And, you know, they could be cheeky and mischievous, you know, like the Tinkerbell thing, but they did nothing for me whatsoever. So I made them really, really frightening. 
and more in line with what I had been delighted by in mythology. You know, the, the old tales of people going out for a party one night with fairies and then a hundred years passing and everyone they ever loved is now dead. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> that's better. I like that kind of fairy story. And so it was, it was almost as well writing the kind of story that I, I mean, don't we all do this? We write the story that we would have liked to have read. Um, I would have really loved that story of a, a woman discovering feminism and, and discovering, you know, Kathy is a terrible feminist at the beginning of the books and it's her journey. Um, part of it is her journey of, of, of stopping being so rubbish. Um, and yeah, I kind of feel like that was an important thing for me to explore as well. That's what I was going to say, because I feel like fairies at a certain time in 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 Britain were actually quite as a, whether you think they're real or mythology, they were kind of like a conservative force in that they allowed certain parts of uh, British culture to kind of push all the darker sides of our natures onto the gentry below. So, you know, a woman disappears from her husband and comes back with child or the husband disappears and doesn't come back for ages and then, you know, returns drunk or whatever. And these things... We're, we're, we're able to, they they had a great explanatory power, I feel, like the, the fairies, you know, why, from everything from why does my butter not come in the churn to why don't I love my own child? You know, they, 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 they filled in those gaps in a way that I think was sort of inherently conservative. And what I love about your books is how you sort of almost reclaim them for the opposite purpose <laughs> of, of being these kind of provocateurs that start yeah, poking holes in the in in i guess the societal story that we tell about ourselves could you talk a little bit about um I, i'm really interested in this idea of sort of how you use them as a kind of reflection for of kind of like to explore and break apart patriarchy could you talk about that a little bit yeah so um that's one of the you you kind of brushed upon it there that um there are, when you are born into the great families and it's in the nether, um, life is closer to what it was like in kind of Georgian and Victorian England, depending on the city, the, which nether city you grow up in. And um, all of the rules, the strict rules are very much based on kind of patriarchal structures of society. Men have all the power, uh, women are seen as possessions and um, don't have any fundamental rights of their own. And um, so it's it's a very kind of straightforward, traditional, old fashioned patriarchal structure. But as the books go on, it becomes clear that it's actually the, the men within that system, within that society that have created and are maintaining this. It's not the Fae, even though they're always doing the bidding of their Fae masters. Um, the Fae themselves are chaotic you know, cruel things that they're not inherently patriarchal or sexist at all. They they um, will use the rules that people have made um, for their own gain, but it, they haven't laid them down themselves. And I guess I was playing with that tension between our wilder 
kind of instincts and ways that we used to live perhaps and the way that they had been kind of sanitized and uh, restricted by the industrial revolution and and Victorian um, ideals and um, so there was there was an element of that um, I mean I, I grew up in Cornwall and so the other aspect of course is that stories of fairies are abundant there um, you have buckers who were kind of like spirits, sprites, I don't even know how I would describe them, who live in the mines. And um, the miners used to throw the crusts of the pasty um, to the buckers as offerings because the buckers used to warn them if there was going to be a cave-in because they would knock. Um, And, you know, stories like that I grew up with and and adored. and so all of that always gets woven in as well. I mean, every novel that anyone ever writes, I'm convinced, are just mushrooms that sprout of our, out of our own internal compost heaps of everything that's been chucked in. Um, but a lot of my anger went into the split worlds. Um, a lot of my raging against patriarchy and frustrations with expectations um, placed upon me as a woman. And um, there was there was a lot of... Um, kind of channeling of that anger into those novels. I'm going to, I've got one more question before we move on to Planetfall, because I'm really keen to talk about that. But just based on what you just said, a lot of writers I talk to, they do sort of often, when they look back, a little bit like with your lodger saying, oh, this is about you and your dad, right? When they look back on books even if they didn't consciously set out to explore a topic or they often find that they were grappling with some personal problem or like mourning a loss or you know they were something there was some almost insoluble problem uh, uh that they were working through in those books in the split world's quintet um do you feel there was some that subject of like working through the kind of unfair expectations that are placed on you. Do you feel like actually having written it out, you came to a better understanding of it? Did it help you is what I'm, uh, I guess I'm asking. It helped me to understand how little I knew about feminism. It, it helped me to see, uh, I guess, I guess one of the things that I was kind of processing within it was that I grew up being very much a kind of a tomboy and actively rejecting the traditional um, kind of gender expectations because I loved all of the things that girls weren't supposed to love, according to all the people around me. And so I was never, ever comfortable within the framework of what society dictated I should be. And that is Kathy. You know, she 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 is a complete nightmare for the people in her family. She does not fit, um, and she has, through a, a moment of brilliance, engineered and has has engineered this opportunity to escape. And um, I think that there was an exploration of that that I've always been trying to escape, and feminism. And my increasing knowledge of it over the years has has enabled me to escape the confines of the patriarchal view of what I should be, but also to become so aware of it that I'm constantly furious and 
you know, painfully aware of, of how far we have to go. And, you know, this was before I understood anything about, you know, the intersection of racism and sexism. And, you know, there, there are so many, the intersectionality of, of feminism as well. Um, it's, it's an ongoing lifelong journey um, that I think I was starting in the split worlds, but it was very much the start of the journey. I'm, I'm further along it now. That was a very long and waffling. Well, um, uh, you know what? The the one thing I found is a, a is a consistent is that whenever somebody that I'm chatting to on on this podcast says something hugely consistent, um, coherent and uh, and interesting, uh, they will always end it with, "I'm sorry, that was probably nonsense." And I was like, <laughs> Whenever they say something like poignant and honest and vulnerable and interesting and wise, they will always have a little mild panic at the end that they've just been talking bollocks. You really, as far as my understanding of what I heard there, that was really fascinating. I was listening rapt. Maybe it's because I'm not interrupting them. They go, oh, Tim must have. <laughs> I don't, it was interesting because I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question before, which is quite thrilling. Um but yeah, you're you're entirely right that there are t- there are books we write represent times in our lives and represent realizations and that that kind of realization of the patriarchy it is like becoming aware of the matrix. There's there's a moment and it for it depends where it, people discover this moment at completely different times in their lives through different ways. But it's like once you've taken that pill, you can't unsee it. That this is this is a, a real kind of shock to the system when you suddenly go, oh, actually, there is something really fundamentally wrong with the the world. There's not something really fundamentally wrong with me in this particular axis, and yeah, I, that's um, so. it's really and um and sometimes the real occasionally the books make the realization before you do as well. I find found which is why oh, yeah. terrifyingly sometimes. <laughs> I write a book and it kind of predicts my future one or two years in advance. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, sh- 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 I knew yes. that before I knew that. Um, that's very uh, worrying. Speaking of predicting the future, uh, he says, linking seamlessly. Can we talk about Planetfall <laughs> nice. now? Because I'm, re- I'm really, I'm so glad that we get to talk about this. I'm really thrilled. And I'm a bit sort of nervous as well because... Um, well, I'll go into, I'll just talk my own experience of this over the top of it, and then we can go back into the unsullied one. But I think like reading Planetfall and um, sort of following Ren's story, this is going to sound like the stupidest reader response ever, but I felt it was the fir- one of the first times when I've read something, I've gone, oh, that's me. Which, if you or anyone who's read the book, <laughs> will be slightly worried that I identified deeply with the protagonist. But I think because she suffers from anxiety, and I've got like a chronic anxiety disorder, I was like, "Oh, I've never read anyone like me in a book before." Um, and so I found it really hard to read. Really good, but really tough read as a result i was wondering if you could just sort of introduce people to the series a little bit and then we can sort of dive into some of the books and and where it where it's going 
Um, yeah, so um, if it's any consolation, I've had several people say to me that was really hard um, when they've read that book. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of loath to, to describe exactly the form that her mental illness takes. Of course. Because I feel that as you've, you've so nicely skirted around it yourself, you understand that discovering what she suffers from intimately throughout the book is, is I wrote it specifically so that the reader could meet her and understand her before understanding the true depth of her mental yes, illness. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I should say that that is, uh, we, we don't have the uh, same um, etiology of our uh, condition. That's, <laughs> you'll be glad to yeah. hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the Planetfall uh, series starts with the book called Planetfall and it is a genuinely standalone novel and I wrote it as a standalone. And it follows uh, a 3D printing engineer called Ren, whose best friend ingests a strange seed um, and it changes her completely. She falls into a coma, wakes up three months later and says she knows the coordinates for where they can find God and turns into this super genius, invents this spaceship, takes all of these people um, and, they, and they kind of call her the Pathfinder and she takes this ship full of people to this planet which is a 20 year long journey away and the story is set 20 years after they first made Planetfall. So the colony is established and it's an exploration of, of Ren's psychology um, against the backdrop of a stranger entering the colony from the wilderness and there are not supposed to be any other human beings on this planet and so the question is who the hell is this guy why does he look like the woman who brought us here who hasn't been seen since planetfall um and it's it's all about secrets and about how secrets can destroy us um but fundamentally it's a book about a woman with a severe mental illness and all of the contributing factors to that illness, how it impacts upon her life. Um, but critically for me, I wanted to write science fiction with psychological depth. Um, and I, I will defend science fiction until I die. It is my, my first love. But I've read a lot of science fiction, especially golden age science fiction, where the concepts are the kind of the, the key dominant thing within the novel and the characters are less so they are there to deliver the concepts and I'm greedy I wanted both I wanted interesting science fiction concepts I wanted real psychological depth and authenticity and complexity in my protagonist and so it's as much an exploration of her as it is an exploration of how I think we could do colonization on a distant planet um so yeah that's that's the story um that's that's kind of tackled in planetfall as far as i can tell it without massively spoiling of course yeah <laughs> um i because i guess i know um you've sort of mentioned sometimes on i've seen you mention on twitter and stuff about you know when your books are coming out you've you've mentioned uh suffering from anxiety and i've kind of like glommed onto that as i do whenever anyone mentions being anxious which is um you know it's it feels to me like a sort of I'm always looking for other members of the 
sort of secret Freemasonry of um, anxious writers um, <laughs> that I can kind of like do the handshake with and go, oh, you're scared of things as well sometimes you have a panic attack when a jar of capers falls out the cupboard um can we talk about can we exchange stories do you but the experience of being of anxiety affecting one's writing is not a a, a rare one i wondered is ren's experience of uh anxiety did is that something you drew from your own experience of or um and i was wondering whether you could touch on maybe how anxiety affects you know how you how you've managed to how you've managed anxiety as a writer because you have done like a load of books right so something is working and i just wondered <laughs> and, and and i say that actually because you're talking about that success being something that gums you up I've you know I've done dozens of interviews on this podcast and that is so consistently true and writers are so embarrassed about it. Spoke to Joe Dunthorne and he took six years to write his third novel and Joe is someone who I always knew as being like super chilled out. Seemed like he just had it all made but like actually having the success of Submarine made it. He spent six years churning over this book. And, and according to him, ha- hating writing it because he was so scared of screwing it up. So I just yeah. want, I was wondering if you could touch on the theme of anxiety, if you feel comfortable doing so. Yeah, sure. I, I made a conscious decision several years ago, actually, to be very open about the fact that I have generalised anxiety disorder. I was diagnosed with it about ooh, 20 years ago now. I, know, I lose track of how old I am. Probably more than that, actually. Um, it was when I was at university. I had a, a nervous breakdown at university. And um, so this is something that I haven't had to just manage in terms of writing. I have to manage it every single day, um, actively every single day. And um, so when I was writing Wren, you know, there is in the Venn diagram of me and Wren, there is a really big overlap between the two circles in, in terms of common experience. And so there's there's a scene in the book where she has a panic attack and I was really drawing upon personal experience. Yeah, uh, that felt, that was, it was hard to read, but I don't want to make it sound like, I, I, don't, I also don't want to sound like too sycophantic and make you feel uncomfortable, but I was really grateful, actually. To be honest, I was really grateful to read it in fiction because I just hadn't read characters having panic attacks before that weren't, comic characters in sort of late 80s screwball comedies breathing into a paper bag on an aeroplane right like yeah yeah very much so and this was one of the things that I was very very conscious of I wanted to write a character with her particular flavor of OCD stroke uh, anxiety Um, for many many years it's something I've been fascinated with for a very long time and I just didn't have the character. I didn't have the setting. And then all of a sudden it magically coalesced. I knew exactly how I was going to write about that illness. And it was really important to me to write a character who is incredibly intelligent, who is absolutely crucial to her community. She has such an important role as the expert 3D printing engineer. She's really competent. She's really competent. I love that about her. She's super competent. Yeah, she is a a kick-ass engineer. She's in her 70s. And, you know, she she is a very clever, very analytical, very able woman. And she suffers from a really severe mental illness. And it was really important to me that she had all of those characteristics because I was 
sick and tired of people with severe mental illnesses in television shows and films and in some novels as well being either the villain or the serial killer or the comic best friend who cannot quite cope with life and their anxiety disorder is the punchline and it's I didn't see people like myself and like so many of my friends who suffer from all manner of mental illnesses and are still showing up every bloody day, holding down jobs, being amazing people, being amazing friends, actively participating in their communities whilst also struggling with severe mental illness. And we just don't see that. We don't see that enough, I feel. Um, and that's partly why I had my protagonist in performers suffering from postnatal depression because we don't see that enough in terms of nuanced representation full stop let alone in science fiction and so i thought well i'd better write it then it, it's like <laughs> yeah no it's i don't and i don't I, it's, it's it's so strange to me because i don't really know what i don't really know why i, I don't know whether it's just that because we haven't seen it we don't have a shape we don't have the tropes for it to just naturally be drawn do you know what i mean like those channels haven't been dug or because as soon as i was reading it in planetfall i was like of course of course like this is of course you can have a character who does both because that's what real life is like but yeah. until then you know like i think the only character you know like my my go-to's for characters who have anxiety disorders and like panic attacks are like the last season of sex in the city where like the baddie artist that carries with like has a panic attack selfishly to control her and stop her seeing her friends and that's how we know he's not for her because him having a panic attack at his um at his art launch, at his gallery launch, is a moral failing. It's something he does to control other people and be selfish. And yeah. it made me feel awful because I was like, oh, that's yeah. because I accepted that as that's probably me then. OK, so I have panic attacks to try and get my way. And um, it's funny how how much it means to me to just see it done well in a way that's part of the story, but not all of the story. And um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to kind of go on about it. Just it, that no, was something that's really important to me to read. It's lovely to hear. It's lovely to hear. And, and I'm glad you made the point that it is not what the story is all about. Because, you know, so often that kind of element of, in, in close quotes, difference about a character is like the one quality they have. And it was a very important thing to me that, there, you know, there is other plot going on she is doing she she's conducting her own investigation into a massively complex alien artifact on this planet um it's it's kind of critical to the story the illness that she suffers from but it is not the story it's interwoven um and, and that was again a conscious choice on my part it's not all she is and when you live every day with a mental illness and when you struggle every day, sometimes, you know, your own head weasels can start to make you think that it, it is all you are and that it is the centre of your life. And, and it's hard to hold on to the fact that you are other things too. Um, and so I guess that was one of the reasons I wrote that aspect of it that way. Can we um, talk a bit about um, sort of after Atlas? And I know um, 
there's after Atlas and before Mars and then Atlas Alone, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. Speaking of yes. feeling nervous about things. Yes. <laughs> um, but nervous and excited, of course. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about where the sort of series... Um, then then goes again like i realize i'm asking you to summarize a a bunch of like complex books um in a very sort of like chunked down way without doing too many spoilers <laughs> it is i'm really putting you through your paces here but hopefully <laughs> um i'm sure you're up to the challenge uh well i'm glad you are um so after atlas was the second novel i wrote set in that universe and the protagonist is the son of somebody who went with the Pathfinder as a member of the colony that um, we are centred within in Planetfall. But he was uh, left behind on Earth as a baby. His mother went with them. Um, his father didn't make the cut to go on the trip. And so both he and his father were left behind. And he is in his 40s when we um, meet him in the novel. He is an SDCI, which is a... a a special kind of investigator um, who is brought in to solve the most complex cases because this is like 80 odd years in the future a lot of crimes are solved with you know AIs and data processing but there are some crimes which are complicated enough that you need a human brain to go and investigate and look into them and he's the person they call in for the really really tricky cases he is also an indentured slave to the GovCorp uh, Norropean GovCorp um, so he has a position of high social power um, and has zero human rights. He is considered an asset. He is considered property by the corporation. And so he is assigned to investigate the murder of a cult leader. And the reason he is assigned to investigate it is because he himself as a child grew up in that cult. And so the cult uh say that he is the only one who's allowed to investigate the the murder and there's all kinds of legal reasons um so he ends up going to this hotel on the edge of dartmoor um to investigate the death of a man who was an incredibly charismatic and toxic influence in his life and it explores the traumas of his life and how he ended up um as effectively a slave um and about uh, the investigation and with that book I I wanted to write a futuristic uh, murder mystery kind of police procedural uh, but with really advanced tech and kind of flip the the tropes of the narrative so there are so many times in crime stories where you can build tension within the story because it's going to take three weeks for the genetic tests to come back or you can have some kind of backup at the lab which delays this particular bit of data so you can still have other like risk factors and potentially more murders happening, that kind of thing. I flipped that on its head. So all of the things that traditionally are used to kind of pace out the story could be gained instantaneously. They had like a genetic material processor with the SOCO team in the room. So they could instantly give information on genetic materials found in the room, that in the crime scene, that kind of thing. Um, and so it was the challenge of, of having the tension of a murder mystery when you don't have the traditional means of of uh, generating tension within a police pr procedural. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, absolutely. I was going to ask, um, this might be sort of like a slightly left-field question, but so when people are writing, when normally if you're writing a conventional police procedural, 
procedural. Gosh, that's I so struggle saying that it's word. A horrible word. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can go and you can research it. You can find out how things are done. Obviously, this world is made up. So how do you do something? How did you go about? You were talking about when you would do um, tabletop RPGs, about making your world sort of feel internally consistent. This is something that you sort of hinted that you are borderline obsessive about. How do you... Like, you are now coming out with, like, a whole, like... You're doing, like, a future world. There's a whole, like, sequence of jurisprudence, um, like, legal stuff, um, how crime scene investigations work how on earth do you tackle researching something that is also exists only in your head and making it consistent in a way that made you feel you had permission to just make shit up in the world because you felt confident in it (laughs) um so for me uh all of the tech in my science fiction novels are logical extrapolations from what we have now so i will look at what we have now and think okay this is the way that i think it could go and so in the one of the opening scenes of Planetfall, Ren is remembering 3D printing an organ um, that she's, you know, going, is hoping is going to save her father's life. Um, and then I think two or three years after the book came out, there was an article about 3D printing human organs. And loads of people were sending me links to it going, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's because when you do research on particular aspects of tech, you can see where it's heading and there are, you know, sometimes there are signposts towards it. Sometimes there's speculation. Other times it's just your imagination. So when it came to After Atlas, I researched how um, a Soko team will approach a crime scene. And then I thought to myself, okay, how would I improve that with advancements in technology? So an example of this is that uh, you always have a crime scene photographer. Um, and so I thought, well, actually, one of the things that I find dissatisfying about crime scene photography is that uh, you have to have somebody enter the scene. Um, and yeah, there, are, there are precautions you can take, but fundamentally, somebody has to go in to the scene. There's the psychological impact of uh, that kind of recording of crimes. There's also the possibility of human error. Um, you know, those, they, all of those factors. So now I'm 80 odd years in the future, drone technology is going to be advanced, camera technology is advanced. So what I have now is um, drones, which have many, many high resolution cameras on them that fly around the crime scene. They take thousands upon thousands of high resolution images, which can then be rendered in a 3D fully immersive virtual rendering of the crime scene so that the investigator can walk around the crime scene without touching anything and for me that was just logic that was just well that's kind of obvious that that's what we should be doing um and so it's that kind of process that I go through whenever I'm writing the story and thinking okay what is what is the protagonist interacting with in terms of the uh, investigation Um, how will that be impacted by what I know of the technology level of my world? Um, How does that impact upon the story? And to think it through as much as I can. See, I think people, I I sort of feel like people might think you're being flippant when you go, that's just logical. But I do feel actually, I do really see where you're coming from, that when you actually like engage with something, when you like take it as far as it can go, when you go, okay, so, and you actually ask yourself those questions, it's a bit like GMing and knowing basically what the key characters who are under your control want. A lot yes. of the story just 
auto generates itself. The yes. the main team want to do something, and you're like, go well. The baddie's going to do this. They know this and this. And later, people can go. How did you have all this in your head? And you, it's like, I don't. But I sort of have the the DNA. I have the genetic code to like just drop it into a petri dish, and it will create itself. And it sounds like what you're saying. You know, as much as some people will go, well, that isn't a logical extrapolation to me. Well, maybe it's not. And they would come up with a different technology that would be brilliant in its own way. But giving yourself just fully investing in those starting blocks, the mind is a wondrous thing. And it's funny how quickly it will come up with wild answers that feel like they spring from nowhere. Yeah, I think especially with science fiction, as long as you have a really good grasp of like the the main technological advances and differences between that world you're writing and in your own. So in, in the Planetfall universe, neural chip technology is ubiquitous and is fully integrated with society. And you have to have provision made for people who don't have neural chips. Um, and so, you know, having somebody provide a tablet to interact with the internet is seen as, you know, almost like accommodating for um, a disability in a way, because that technology is so 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 deeply embedded in society now that that is the way that people interact with things um so it's as long as you have a very good sense of what your kind of core technological advances are you know i don't necessarily believe myself that neural chip technology is going to develop in the way that it is in my books but it's fiction and when i when i started writing planetfall i had this real crisis of oh no, you know, what if I'm getting it wrong? What if I predict this wrong? And it's like, oh, get over yourself, Emma. You're not a futurologist. You're not being paid by a company to make predictions that is going to affect the way that people invest millions of pounds. You're just writing fiction and it's okay. <laughs> you know, this is just one person's imagining of a, you know, I was going to say fantastical future. That's, that's the wrong kind of word, but a theoretical future. And whilst I try to embed it, as much as I can in logical extrapolations from the present day, there are some like neural chip technology. I mean, I, I could be very boring about that for hours about all of the ways that that would not work. Um, but sometimes you just have to say, that's not it. Like, that's really cool. <laughs> that's really cool. And I want to play with it. <laughs> <laughs> like Cordwain and Smith decided that spaceships were going to get through um, uh, uh, co cosmic radiation belts by being full of being lined with clams like <laughs> oh yeah you know when you when you start looking when you start really delving around in science fiction it's like yeah i'm okay <laughs> <laughs> i had a really interesting debate with a very good friend of mine actually who um he's um is his job he uh designs submarines and uh warships and teaches other people how to do that and then as a hobby he designs rockets and he's, he's awesome and we role play together and we're, we're both giant nerds and we had a really, really cool conversation in which we were discussing the design of the spaceship that Atlas alone is set on. And um, he was saying that I write hard SF. And I, I had this real kind of like double take moment. And I said, I don't write hard SF. And he said, but you do, because all of it makes sense. All of it is perfectly logical. All of it is rooted within proper science. You know, you're, you're not waving her arms and and saying midichlorians or whatever you know this is this is proper science and so then we had this really interesting debate about what is considered hard sf because in my mind because my sf is very much focused on people 
and on psychology and the psychological depths of those characters interacting in a world that happens to be in the future, my brain hadn't put it into that category. And it was, yeah, sorry, that's completely no, aside. No, this is, this is brilliant because actually... I would love to. I'd love to draw you out a bit more on that, um, and kind of like also just moving between before Mars and Atlas alone. But this genre question was something I wanted to come on to. Now, my sort of, I suppose my initial instinct would be that part of the the bias that people have about it, in terms of hard SF can't um, have psychological realism, can't have character depth is um what we were talking about before a kind of like patriarchy and sexism in that that <laughs> that like the real sciences and sort of serious stuff is a story should be a um delivery system for a plausible um mining shuttle and the characters can just operate it whereas a kind of you know space opera that's um where you have uh, people and characters and matters of the heart, but those aren't those aren't the concerns of engineers, you know. And and and, and that those and and that maybe you know. Um, I think spe- especially sort of men have been more who write science fiction are more likely to you know be taken very seriously, and people nod and scratch their beards and say yes, yes, this is very serious science fiction. And women are often sort of more pigeonholed as writing sort of stuff that is more fantastical and is more to do with the human heart as if those two things are mutually irreconcilable yeah and this this is one of my bugbears because for me science fiction is worthless if it doesn't examine the intersection between humanity and technology that 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 is why i'm here for sci-fi because I'm endlessly fascinated by the way that the evolution of humanity and the evolution of technology is intertwining and and what it is doing to us as a species. And you, you can't have one without the other, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of modern SF. And when I think about hard SF, I think about the golden age sci-fi that I waded through as a teenager, where there would be like five pages of exposition about, I don't know, the way that certain planets move in a system and that being why the ship had to go in this particular... I can't even remember. But it was, it was heavy stuff. It was, you know... Writing that I would consider to not be the best writing. That was so diplomatic of you. I'm I'm really dancing around the subject here because I could, you know, really, really upset some people. And believe me, I, I love, 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 love my genre. But there is a lot of it that came out of the last century that, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of. I'm not going to lie, you know. I'm standing on the shoulders of books which did things that I don't like as a writer. Um, Good, because otherwise, you know, I, why would you write? If it was perfect, yeah. there'd be nothing to do. You've got it, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's served its purpose. It, you know, it, it's great. If, if people want to read about that, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Personally, I don't feel like I need to spend, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs um, explaining how my 3D printing te- technology works. I know how it works in my head. The reader does not need to know that because that is not serving the story. I think I 
I th- I absolutely I absolutely agree so much, and I'm um, I'm gonna sort of withhold from kind of like going in as well. But certainly, you get the same thing with some historical uh, novels where someone's like, "I've done the research, I've suffered for my art, so you should too." <laughs> I want you to know that I read, because you know, like writing the honors, I read books. Like the stack of books that I read to research country houses is taller than me, and I, I've got most of them still on my shelves. And I cut all of that out. It was just important that I knew it. You don't yeah. need to know that I know it because that's why it's a novel and not a bibliography. Is because it's really important that you cut that stuff out. And I think that's why your books um, have such a kind of. Uh, push-pull dynamic that like draws us through it. I think that's why they've got such a kind of elastic force that feels like it's propelling us through the narrative is because we see, we glimpse the kind of like those bits of the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, and it's hinted that there's more underneath, but you, you don't force us to, you don't force us to go, okay, let's, let's just go and look underneath. I want you to know that there is a whole iceberg here, just in case you think I'm swindling you. <laughs> I I know icebergs. Come here. It's like actually, it takes huge confidence as a writer as well to go. You're going to trust my authority. Um, here's a little. Here's a down payment on that. Now let's get on with things. Thank you. Can we talk a bit about? I want to just so while we've just got time, I just want to just talk about Atlas alone and uh, before Mars, how that leads into that. But I know that this is the book you've got coming out, and um. This is, I I just wonder if we could just talk a bit about what that's uh, about. I will put links, by the way, to everyone listening. I always point downwards as if people can see and I'm doing a YouTube video. (laughs) No one can see me do that. And I always like pointing beneath the player. But in the show notes, I will put links to all Emma's books that we've discussed. So you can go and um, uh, check them out and uh, uh, get them and read them immediately after we finish talking. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, Before Mars is the, the third book. Um, they can be read in any order uh, because they are standalone, but Before Mars is set concurrently with After Atlas. Um, and if you've read After Atlas first, you will be filled with this sense of terrible dread as you're reading yeah. the book. <laughs> I read After Atlas um, to my best friend and then I read started reading Before Mars and they were like, this is set at the same time, isn't it? Oh God, oh God, oh God. <laughs> and it was just such a, a beautiful thing seeing them worrying about exactly when a certain thing was going to happen. Um, I'm actually evil. So Before Mars is all about a woman who is a geologist um, and she is also an amateur painter. And um, she is sent to Mars to paint landscapes of Mars on Mars using Martian materials. She's sent by this billionaire um, called Stefan Gabor, who was a character in After Atlas. And um, she is going there for the geology, as far as she's concerned. She has always wanted, she works in a lab on Earth that um, analyzes samples from Mars and is kind of obsessed with the planet in in some ways. Um, And so she's thrilled to go there to get stuck in um, and there's a very small team in a base um, there who different people react to her differently. Um, you know, some are quite hostile towards her um, because they don't think that, you know, she should have been sent there. And um, she arrives 
goes to her room and finds a note that's painted in her own style saying don't trust Arnolfi who is the base psychiatrist and she has no idea how it got there it was kind of like stuck between the bed and the wall and everything starts it's a psychological thriller um, and she travelled from Earth to Mars by herself um, and was alone for effectively nine months and spent a lot of time in immersion. As I mentioned before, there's neural chip technology in, in my world. And so you can live, relive memories, you can play immersive games. Um, and she spent a huge amount of time replaying old memories of her family. And so the base psychiatrist uh, thinks that she has what they call immersion psychosis, where you spend so much time in memories and in games that you can't actually tell the difference between memories and reality anymore. And uh, she starts to discover weird things happening, but is it actually her? Are people tricking her? Um, is it immersion psychosis? It's kind of like a, like I said, a big psychological thriller stroke mystery. Um, and she also is suffering from postnatal depression. She's left behind a baby on Earth. Um, and so it's an exploration of that and, uh, yeah, and motherhood and how it can really suck. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's before Mars. Um, and I, I don't I, I want to I've got like a question that I'm building up to, but I'm conscious of time. And I want to just I wonder if you could just touch on Atlas alone and what that one's about because that's the new one coming out yeah so atlas alone it's tricky talking about atlas alone because i think you genuinely do need to read after atlas before you read oh, atlas so alone. if there's too much many spoilers then by all means you can kind of uh i can just give you the theme okay. so the so the protagonist is d who is the uh so carl is the protagonist of after atlas the, the police detective d is his best friend and she is the protagonist of atlas alone um, and the book is all about um, revenge and preserving your own humanity when um, terrible things have happened and how you react to those things and what you're prepared to sacrifice for what you believe is the good of humanity. So here is my here's my question I want to ask you about the Planetfall series. And it might because they're because they deal with different things even though they're set in the same universe, it might, it might be a bit too much. But um, I asked you uh, about the split worlds, kind of like, was there something you were working through here that you, looking back, you were able to see? And you talked about that. I was wondering, with Planetfall, if you could talk about, is there anything looking back now when you look at the books? Are there themes that are running through them or something that you were grappling with um, that the books sort of like deal with because like i i hate talking about stuff and like saying uh, like the books are it this they can be un they can be unhappy in places right i don't want to i don't want to sound like i'm being sort of i'm going oh they're really sort of harrowing and stuff but carry the you put your characters through they're tested a lot i'll put it that way yes um and i didn't feel they were like manipulative or horrible but they are like it's it's like it gets rough for like a lot of people involved right and they're dealing with yes. a lot and they're surviving a lot as well um i wondered if you could talk a bit about what you feel you're exploring and whether it's what you've learned from writing the books i guess uh there are 
was there were quite a few people who asked if Planetfall was processing the grief of having lost my best friend because that's one of the themes in the book but she died after I finished writing it and it was one of those strange things that it, it was almost like telling the future like we were saying before um I imagined what it would be like um when I was writing Planetfall um there, there wasn't a processing of that I mean there was definitely an exploration of what it's like to live with an anxiety disorder but I I don't think it was processing that I I don't know maybe I'm still close too close to it certainly with After Atlas I was at the time very concerned about the TTIP that was threatening you know those halcyon days before Trump and Brexit <laughs> when I was worried about the TTIP god I wish I could be worried about that again it, and I could just see things sliding towards this really dark future. And I thought, I really want people to stop and think about this and to think about what it would be like to give corporations the power to sue governments. And so the world that I write there is is the logical extrapolation if the TTIP had been signed and we went into the worst case scenario. Um, through all of these books, I mean, definitely before Mars, I drew on some really awful personal experiences with postnatal depression um and it was horrible to write and I hated writing that book um but I don't know if it gave me any new insights because I I had all of the insights <laughs> I needed to know into that having been through it so maybe I'm still too close to it all there is a lot of trauma in those books and I have experienced a lot of trauma in my life I guess in drawing upon personal experiences of my own and writing them there is always going to be an element of processing but I mean certainly Atlas alone um I drew a lot on my own experiences and psychology for that book and I feel that that book in itself is almost like a this is going to sound really pretentious but it's almost like a dialogue with myself um and talking to myself about why I need to reach out to other people to help deal with things that have happened to me, um, because that's one of the themes of the book. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's so much kind of psychological depth that has to be gone into with the characters as they are in these books that it's, it's inevitable that there is processing, but I don't I can't really feel like I have a good handle on what exactly it was. Maybe it's too deep. I'm, uh, Maybe I'm not consciously aware of it. I mean, please don't... I don't want to sort of like feel like I'm kind of uh, trying to force a kind of lens of all books are this thing that you can just put, read off one process from. I think that's something that I've become interested in from talking to a lot of writers, but it's not the same for everyone. And... Some characters are, some protagonists sometimes are proxies for us or partial proxies. Sometimes they're aspirational, you know, sometimes they're just exploring something that's completely away from us. So, I'm, I'm you know, I apologise if it sounds like I'm, I'm going every single one of your books is like, has got to be, <laughs> is like a therapy session. Um, I, I know it's not like that for everyone. And sometimes it's like ideas, sometimes it's external things that come into them. Um. I wondered if you could just 
you know, just to sort of, as we sort of round off this chat, and thank you so much, by the way. Like, it's been amazing talking to you, Emma. I'm having the time <laughs> of my life. I'd keep going forever, but I just am conscious that you've got a life to live. Um, <laughs> I, I wondered, I'm going to ask you, like, the big question, which is, why write? Because you, you, you said about, like, writing before Mars, you said... I hated writing it. It was really hard to write and I hated writing it. And you had to re you, uh, you know, people who don't write would be like, well, why do it then? Why did you do that? Yeah. And so why, what, what, what do you, what do you get out of uh, writing after, you know, doing these books? What, 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 what keeps you writing? Why write? There's an element of compulsion. If I don't write for a long time, I get really grumpy and just, like I'm out of phase with the world. I can't function properly within it. And I think that it's the way I think in many ways. And if I need to really think deeply about something, I need to write. Um, I used to do that with blog posts, but then my career kind of took off and I didn't have time to write long rambling blog posts, figuring stuff out anymore, which I, I do kind of miss. Um, with each of the books that I write, there's always a question. Um, one of the questions in Planet Four was, could I plausibly write scientists who have religious faith? Because in my mind, they're completely separate. I know that there are many scientists who are religious people. Um, I'm an atheist myself, and so I was kind of fascinated by this because, you know, narratively, I've it's always been something very separate for me. Um, and so one of the questions was, could I write a character who has deep faith in God, who is also a brilliant scientist? Could I do that plausibly? Um, and so there's an element of curiosity. There was there were points with the Split World series where I was just kind of hammering towards the end because I wanted to know what was going to happen. I just didn't quite know how it was going to work out and I needed to write to find out. Um, and that is usually only in the last kind of 5% of the book. Usually I have a very clear idea of what the end point is going to be, but sometimes I don't. And it's that thrill of excavation. Um, there was a short story I just wrote for my uh, newsletter um, subscribers. I write a short story every month set in the Planetfall universe. And I wrote the first one um, and sent it out a couple of weeks ago. And that was a real excavation story. I was I didn't have a clear mind, a clear um, view of it in my mind. I, I had the beginning and I had a sense of the atmosphere of the story, but I didn't know how it was going to end. And I didn't know until I was writing it. And that was both terrifying and thrilling at the same time. So it gets lots of different things. Excavation as a piece of language suggests that to you it feels like the thing already exists and you are just digging it up yeah it does for some some things i mean i'm somewhere between an outliner and a panster i like to know what i'm writing for at least the next five chapters i like to have an overview of the structure of the book i like to have a firm grip on the narrative arc in the broadest strokes and the the character development arcs but there's a there's a lot of unknowns in that, and it, it does feel like excavation to me. It almost feels like discovering a fossil, and you know you're just brushing away the layers of dirt 
you know gently 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 and then you know you don't necessarily know what kind of dinosaur it is you just find a bone and you know you sometimes don't know exactly what kind of story it is like you were saying you don't know what you've written until you've written it sometimes you know I'll get to the end of a book and go oh right okay so that's what that book was actually Mm. about I thought it was about this but it was actually about this and that's what I mean by excavation as well so my final, final question, I'm sorry to keep, but this is my final question. I just wanted to ask if you've got any writing advice, because so many writers are listening to this. And actually, everything you've talked about has been shot through with uh, uh, rich seams of great, great writing advice that people can learn but from. But I know that you've, you mentioned before that you've taught, you know, about creative writing and a bit about sort of anxiety and things like that. But you've taught so much about creative writing as well. I was wondering if you have any advice for people who are, you know, working on their stuff or unable to start. If you've got a piece of creative writing advice that you think would be particularly helpful for people. Uh, so lots of people have problems with kind of starting and with procrastination. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's like putting off starting something or having started something and then not quite getting back to it and never quite finding the time. Um, so my advice in that situation is uh, to acknowledge that fear underpins that behaviour, that whenever you're thinking, oh, I'll just go and do the washing up when you were actually going to write, you need to acknowledge that you're afraid and that you're trying to avoid some sort of pain by going and doing something else instead of the writing. And that until you challenge, until you meet that fear and challenge it, and in my case, I have conversations with it, that's not everyone's style, but until you try and work out what that fear is protecting you from, then you're always gonna struggle with procrastination. Um, So for example, I have massive resistance when I'm about 90% through the first draft of a novel and I have to really bludgeon myself into writing until I then realise, somehow having forgotten it for the previous nine bloody novels, that the reason I'm having all of that resistance is because I know that I'm going to finish the book very soon and then it will have to stand on its own, I will have to send it to my agent and she could potentially say this sucks and that's terrifying. And that is what that fear is trying to protect me from. And once I acknowledge that and say, well, honey, there is no way around that is there if you want to pay the mortgage, then I can say, thank you for trying to protect me. I have to do this. It's my job. And then carry on. So that that's how I would approach it. I do a workshop on it. I'm doing a workshop at EasterCon on this entire process because there's more to it. But that's that's the nutshell. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Uh Emma, if people want to um, find you online, what's the best uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so my website is www.enewman.co.uk and I would recommend that they sign up for my newsletter because if you're a subscriber, you can send in questions that I will uh, answer in future newsletters and you get free short stories set in the Planetfall universe. I'm also on Twitter as mapocalyptic, that's E-M apocalyptic. Um, and on Instagram is the same. Um, so yeah, that's, those are the best places to find me. Awesome. I will put links to all of those things in the show notes and on my website, teamcolorpoet.co.uk. Thank you very much, uh, Emma, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a lovely chat, actually. Oh, I'm so glad. I've had a wonderful time. And everybody listening, I hope you have an absolutely fantastic week of writing.